You are listening to the Journal of Rheumatology's Editor's Picks with Dr. Earl Silverman, Editor-in-Chief. Hello again, this is Earl Silverman, Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Rheumatology, welcoming you to the August 2023 edition of Editor's Picks. I want to thank you for having taken the time to listen to this podcast. This month, I will start with a portion of my interview with Drs. George Green, David Sella, and Eric Rudman on behalf of all the authors of the paper entitled Integrating Promise Measures in a Treat-to-Target Approach to Standardize Patient-Centered Treatment of Rheumatoid Arthritis. So. I think we got at it a little bit here, the implications. So where, where is this going to go at the conclusions? How is this going to change? Has it changed daily care? Will it, should it change daily care? Or are we too early? Well, I think I, it's, it's led to this dashboard, which I think is very helpful. And, you know, some of the next steps is to kind of um, look a little bit more deeply at some of those questions. I, more broadly, I, I think it, the, the place where it'll change care is, is more individualized care. You know, we've talked so much these days about personalized medicine, but, but everybody sort of, it, many people interpret personalized medicine as picking the right drug for the right patient, but it's way more than that. And it's really much more individualized. So it's not just the right treatment, but also how you apply that treatment and how you make decisions on when to change that treatment. And so much of that is individual. And so, which really next steps are working to try to understand that a little bit better so that in the long run, people can both be improved and happier with their care and feel like they've gotten what they need out of their visits. I, I think what I would add to that is to yes. like what we know. Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry, Earl. I, oh, no, I, I was going to say, I was gonna say what, what I would add to that really on a, on a different track is, is that um, eight to 10 years ago, in order to, do something like this, you really, you know, we had to have a research grant and, and launch it as a, as a research project. Right. Now with the improvements in Epic that we talked about, with the idea that you can go into, into your most electronic health record portals and, and come up with an administration of questions that you can routinely ask with, with patients and create a, a um, uh, single site specific dashboard uh, of your choosing, that you can actually pull this off in clinical practice now without needing to make it a research project um, and, and start to start to incorporate patient reported information into your practice. I hope you enjoyed listening to part of my interview with Drs. Green, Sella, and Ruderman regarding their paper. Integrating Promise Measures in a Treat-to-Target Approach to Standardize Patient-Centered Treatment of Rheumatoid Arthritis, and that you will listen to the full interview and read the full-length article, which are both available at our website at www.jroom.org. The next paper to highlight again focuses on patient-reported outcomes and is titled, one-third of European patients with axial spondyloarthritis reach pain remission with routine care tumor necrosis factor inhibitor treatment. 
and is by Midbull, Ornberg, and colleagues. The aim of this international study was to investigate the distribution of patient-reported outcomes, or PROs, in patients with axial spondyloarthritis, or axial SPA, who were initiating a tumor necrosis factor inhibitor to assess the proportion of those patients who reached a pro-remission across multiple registries and treatment series, and to compare patients registered who fulfilled the New York criteria for ankylosing spondylitis, or AS, versus those with non-radiographic axial spall, or NR axial spall patients. Data from 15 European registries consisting of 19,498 patients with axial spondylarthritis who had pro scores for pain, fatigue, patient global assessment, the Bath Ankylosing Spondylitis Disease Activity Index, or BASDI, the Bath Ankylosing Spondylarthritis Functional Index, BASFI, and Health Assessment Questionnaire Hack. Changes in pros and pro remission rates were determined at 6, 12, and 24 months. Six months after the start of a first TNF inhibitor, pain score was reduced in approximately 60% of the patients with similar patterns for fatigue. Patient Global Assessment, BASDI, BASFI, and HACK. Patients who fulfilled the New York criteria for AS had a slightly better response than those with non-radiographic SPA. Remission rates for pain, fatigue, patient global, BASDI, BASFI, and HACK were generally better for the AS cohort than for those who had non-radiographic axial spall. Overall, better pros were seen after following the first TNF as compared to the second or third anti-TNF agent. The paper describes remission rates at 12 and 24 months and a more in-depth analysis comparing first, second, and third anti-TNF agent starts. Digital ulcers can be difficult to treat in patients with systemic sclerosis. Selexapag, an oral selective prostacycline receptor agonist that is approved for the treatment of systemic sclerosis-related pulmonary hypertension. In this paper by DiBattista and colleagues titled Preliminary Criteria in Laser Speckle Contrast Analysis Data on Selexapeg Efficiency for the Treatment of Digital Vasculopathy in Systemic Sclerosis examined the use of selexapeg in nine patients with systemic sclerosis and refractory digital ulcerative disease. 
in this pilot study of nine patients, after three months, they found a significant number of daily episodes of Raynaud's phenomena, as well as the duration of the episode. The mean number of digital ulcers decreased from 10 to 4. And using laser speckle contrast analysis, they found a significant improvement in the mean perfusion of patients' fingers. One of the patients withdrew from the trial after three weeks for headache, myalgias, and hypotension. In the discussion, the authors comment on the use and value of Selexapeg in systemic sclerosis, particularly those with digital ulcers, and how the use of laser spectral contrast analysis is an excellent measure to quantify perfusion. As it appears that COVID-19 has now become an endemic infection, it is important to examine therapies for COVID-19 in patients with systemic autoimmune diseases. The aim of a paper entitled Oral Antiviral Treatment for COVID-19 in Patients with Systemic Autoimmune Rheumatic Diseases by Gerolomatu and colleagues was to examine the safety and efficacy of two antiviral agents in a retrospective study of 74 patients with a systemic autoimmune rheumatic disease. 35% of the patients received oral molnupiravir, while the other 65% received neuromatrovir, uh, ritonavir combination. 84% of the patients had received at least two doses of an mRNA-based SARS-CoV-2 vaccine prior to treatment. A glucocorticoid was the drug most frequently received by these patients, followed by mycophenolate, then TNF inhibitors, methotrexate, and rituximab. Adverse events were reported in only four of the 74 patients, and both had received the combination medication. None of the patients stopped treatment. 72 of 74 of the patients recovered at home without any COVID-19 complications, and two progressed to severe COVID-19 disease, requiring hospitalization and use of high-flow nasal cannula ventilation. None of the patients required more assisted ventilation. In a company editorial titled Molnunapirvir and Nermatenavir Ritonavir in the treatment of patients with systemic autoimmune rheumatic diseases with SARS-CoV-2 by Drs. Corbett, Ismerly, and Saxena 
from New York University Grossman School of Medicine, New York, USA, review the literature on the use of antiviral agents in SARS patients and give an overview of the patient by, uh, paper by Gorat Matu and colleagues. Both papers are important reading to help all rheumatologists decide who requires therapy in this era of SARS-CoV-2. I'm certainly glad I'm finished with this paper and no longer have to struggle over the name of the antiviral agents. The final article to highlight is entitled Myocarditis in Patients with Idiopathic Inflammatory Myopathies, Clinical Presentation and Outcome, and is by Chung and colleagues. Although it is a rare complication, the aim of this study was to determine the clinical phenotype and outcomes of patients with myocarditis who had an idiopathic inflammatory myopathy who were followed in the John Hopkins, Johns Hopkins Myositis Center Research Registry and were seen over a 17-year period. From a total cohort of more than 3,000 patients who were in the registry, the authors could only confirm the diagnosis of myocarditis in 14 adults with an idiopathic inflammatory myopathy. The mean age of diagnosis was 49 years and a median disease duration between myopathy diagnosis and myocarditis was three years. The majority of patients at 57% were female, while 71% were black. At the time of diagnosis, 77% of the vast majority of patients had active myositis, and 12 of the 14 patients had symptoms consistent with myocarditis, while 13 of the 14 required hospitalization. The most common subtype of myopathy was antisynthetase syndrome, seen in 64% of the patients, with the most frequently found autoantibodies being anti-JO1 in four patients and anti-PL12 antibody in three patients. Despite intensive immunosuppression and directed cardiac therapy, 71% uh, had a cardiac relapse. The five-year survival from the time of diagnosis of myocarditis was only 53%. Although then less than 1% of their cohort followed in the registry developed definite myocarditis, the literature suggests that this diagnosis is much more common with an abnormal cardiac MRI seen in 75% of patients. And therefore, clinicians should be aware of this potentially severe complication. It appears that the patients reported in this paper at one extreme of the spectrum of disease. The image in rheumatology this month describes a 56-year-old man who presented to clinic with pain and swelling of his left knee of several days' duration. 
He had had a 10-year history of intermittent self-resolving swelling in his knees, ankles, and elbows. No diagnosis had been made as he had not gone to see a physician. On examination, he had a large left knee effusion, but no tophi were seen. Joint aspiration yield, yielded monosodium urate crystals. A radiograph of the left knee showed a punched-out lesion at the lateral femoral condyle with a sclerotic margin consistent with a so-called rat bite erosion or Martel sign. As part of the 50th anniversary of the Journal of Rheumatology, we are again highlighting three articles from an era. This time, it is for the years 2000 to 2009. The three articles are entitled, One, Preliminary Criteria for Clinical Remission for Select Categories of Juvenile Idiopathic Arthritis. Two, Systemic Lupus Erythematosus Disease Activity Index, and three, Criteria for the Classification of Early Systemic Sclerosis. All three articles in my editorial, which gives an overview of the reasoning behind my selection of these articles, are available both in the print edition and on our website. I want to thank you for listening to this podcast. And encourage you to read not only my highlighted articles, but all the articles in the August 2023 edition of Journal of Rheumatology, either in our print edition or the online edition, which is available at www.jroom.org. Also, please watch the complete interview of the highlighted articles of this month and of previous months, if you have not done so. They are available for viewing at our website and on YouTube. If you have any comments or questions on these highlighted articles or any article in the Journal of Rheumatology, please send them to manuscripts at jroom.com. And please listen to next month's edition of Editor's Highlights. Thank you.